1: This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast today Discussing Robin Williams and the trappings of fame With guest New York Times journalist Dave Hitzkoff Author of the 2018 biography Robin I'm Mark Lintonmeyer and I thought the Popeye film could have been much, much worse
2: I'm so offended right now because it was one of my childhood loves I'm Erica Spires, and good morning, Pretty Much Pop listeners.
3: And I'm Brian Hurt, and I know this is an unpopular opinion, but One Hour Photo was not my favorite comedy. (laughs) Hello, Dave.
4: Hi, good morning. How are you? Thanks for joining us.
2: Feel free to give us a pithy intro, or
4: you can just say hello. It's all good. I'm not a pithy person. I'm sorry.
1: So Erica, I think you pitched us this topic. Do you want to start off with a question for Dave or your thoughts about where we want this to go?
2: Yeah, yeah. So welcome, Dave. I'm so excited to have you here.
4: Thank you. Thank you for asking me.
2: (laughs) Absolutely. I worked with Dave's wife last year. We did Carousel on Broadway. We just recently had Margaret Cullen on. So lots of great Carousel connections. And yeah, Amy would talk about your work. She was talking about your work with Robin when it was coming out. And recently we had Tim Sniffen on the show talking about improv. And as we started talking about it, of course, we started talking about Robin Williams being one of the great improvisers, especially in film and his work. So we're like, man, we could do a whole episode on Robin Williams. And I said, well, actually... I happen to know somebody who knows a lot about him, but Dave knows about so much. He's a culture writer at the New York Times and writes about celebrities all the time. So also there's a bigger conversation in there, I think, about celebrity and about the triumphs and the pitfalls of it. And this was a lot of what he had covered with Robin and he's covered with many other people. So if we have time, we might delve into a little bit of Joaquin Phoenix, because I know you recently profiled him as well. But we definitely want to get Robin Williams in there and talk about that
4: where do you want me to begin or where, where would you like to begin?
1: So Dave, I got through your whole book and I was uh, very excited about just the detail that sort of went film by film, but surprised by, you know, somebody that's that successful. You would think once he's kind of gotten his pot of money, then he can do whatever he wants. And that's kind of how it appeared that he did these little films. He tried to stretch himself in dramatic roles, but what came through in the book was how much anxiety he had in an ongoing way about his sort of waning celebrity and kind of disappointment that a lot of these films, The Angriest Man in Brooklyn, I just watched yesterday in preparation for this, like why these films weren't doing better. He felt like he was disappointing everybody. So just to see that both sides of that, you know, I think the culture as a whole was kind of taking Robin Williams a little bit for granted. And there's some things you refer to in your book, this Eric Idle talks about a Family Guy episode, I could come up with a couple other examples where he had become such a trope that, yeah, it was a little difficult for him to authentically connect with people without either he's doing his shtick, and we've seen that shtick enough, or he's not doing his shtick. Why is he not doing his shtick? Like, there was these weird expectations that he didn't really know how to, to meet. You want to start off telling a little bit of that story?
4: I mean, I think part of what we forget about him is that he never even really intended to become a stand-up comedian, and he was somebody who was sincere in his pursuit of acting and trained at Juilliard for three years in their acting program and had attended two other colleges before that, where he was basically focusing on acting as an actor. And I mean, you can go to reviews of him when he was still a student at the College of Marin, just north of San Francisco in the early 70s, doing You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, or doing Twelfth Night and getting great reviews I mean all before he became famous essentially and people regarded him as a very talented and promising young actor and the the comedy sort of came by accident essentially when he dropped out of Juilliard went back to San Francisco and couldn't get hired by you know a real theater company there and had to find other ways to basically just earn a living and be a performer and that's and comedy was what he found and that's essentially how he became famous to people became visible by doing stand-up comedy and then doing Mork and Mindy because that's how he kind of got established, you know, in the sort of cultural consciousness. He could never totally shake that reputation. I mean, he was, you know, people called him Mork to the end of his life, that that was a role as good as he was in it, that he never kind of shook off or never completely got people to disassociate him from. I mean, that also speaks to the level of fame that he did achieve and how Visible and popular, he was, and how every single person on this planet to some degree had some conception of him or what they thought of him and who he was. And it's clearly a kind of a a double edged sword that, yes, that made him beloved and certainly provided a lot of work opportunity for him. But it was something that he found hard to get out of that he, I mean, he was very desiring of just being able to relate to people on. A kind of normal human level. That was certainly my experience with him whenever I wrote about him or, you know, certainly in like in-person interviews and those kinds of interactions, he was somebody who just wanted to be treated like a normal person and engage with you like a normal person. And because of who he was and what he'd accomplished, he could not have that. That just seems awful.
2: You know, it seems like based on what I've read as well, he had a very high emotional intelligence, right?
4: I think the kinds of characters that he sought, whether it was, you know, Popeye or whether it was Adrian Cronauer, I mean, these are people that on some level he felt a connection to and an empathy for that he, even if he hadn't lived their lives, he felt like they had, you know, journeys that were worthwhile and that he wanted to kind of explore and live in. Was it always something
2: that he was then uncomfortable with was this idea of celebrity or was there a certain point in the career when it reached a level that he could
4: no longer control how he could interact? Yeah, I think that happened very quickly. I think really in, you know, practically the first season of Mork and Mindy. I mean, you have to remember how many people were watching that show. I mean, for a show to be, you know, essentially a top 10 hit in the late 1970s, it was being watched by, you know, tens of millions of people. An episode of, you know, Morgan and Mindy can be seen by 20, 30 million people in a night. There's no VCRs. There's no Hulu or, or Netflix to watch it. People are all watching it in real time and they're talking about it the next day. And there's, there's a story that, you know, one of his collaborators from that era told me that, you know, Robin was like, you know, walking down the street or somewhere and he ran into Jack Lemon. and Jack Lemon goes up to Robin and says, I think you're the best thing to happen to comedy in a long time. And, you know, think about how, I mean, on the one hand, that's extremely, you know, validating and complimentary, but that's also a huge burden to, to have to carry that you've been elevated that quickly to such, you know, that level. I mean, the flip side of that, and that's it's this is you know it's very sad i'm I'm, you know i just want to preface this but you know i mean robin within the first couple years of his career i mean he was friendly with john belushi and with john belushi on the last night of, of his life before belushi died of an overdose that was a devastating experience for anybody that knew him that idea that you know belushi was 33 when he died and that he's gone all that potential and opportunity is gone just wasted and there's nothing that says it can't happen to anybody else. And then just a short, you know, around that same time is when John Lennon was murdered. Uh, Robin was not a close friend of Lennon's. I mean, he had, you know, some mutual friends in common. But just the fear that to be a celebrity, you're offered really no protection. And you have all these people who want to know you and get close to you in some way. And you don't know them. And you don't know what their motives are. And it can feel very different. Dangerous and very unsettled. Uh, so, to have, I think, those kinds of formative career experiences really made an impression on him.
3: It strikes me that fame will eventually expand to be harmful, even to someone who, like Robin, it struck me, you know, he maybe had an isolated life somewhat, but he didn't have a damaging childhood the way that we think of. But in no time, he was in the situation where, you know, he was getting all this adulation, working too hard around drugs. And again, by the second season of Mark and Mindy, he he has gone from, I think, being intact to being on this path with drugs and then later alcohol, it sounds like. Everyone has their limits, but fame has no limits or celebrity has no limits and will expand to consume anyone eventually.
4: Yeah, no, I think that that's extremely true. And I mean, you make a good point that, especially with comedians, usually there is some kind of adversity in their upbringing. I mean, you know, Robin was... A disciple of Richard Pryor, and Richard Pryor, I mean, you know, literally grew up in the whorehouses of Peoria. That was not Robin's upbringing at all. He came from real wealth and real privilege, and I think, in some ways, it's true. I mean, he definitely felt isolated from his parents and and felt a lot of loneliness and solitude. But he also was so desirous of validation and wanting, certainly, wanting to be liked. And in some ways, I think not necessarily, uh, you know, embarrassed of the upbringing that he had, but he knew that that made him kind of an outsider in an unusual way. I mean, he would look at friends like Billy Crystal, who, of course, was Jewish, and that made Crystal a kind of underdog uh, that Robin didn't have any of those qualities. And in some ways, he wished he was more of an underdog than he was.
2: People expect more of you because you don't have a sad story to fall back on if you mess up. It's like, well, you had everything going for you. What have you
4: done? Particularly in the era of comedy that he came up in, I mean, people that, you know, there were obviously a lot of Jews in entertainment, uh, black comedians, people who in some way or another were, as society kind of put them on the outside looking in. And so comedy lets them invert that in their routines or in their characters, they can be the ones, you know, in command and commenting on things. And, you know, Robin doesn't have any of that. And it's, I think, A lot of his early stuff its all these kind of character pieces and him playing at other people. You know, how much of his routine at the time was, you know, dependent or reliant on these kinds of almost like, you know, caricatures of Jewish people, black people, gay people. Those are voices that he would kind of slip into because it gave him the opportunity to play at being these other people. And in time, those aspects of his routine actually became, you know, very cliched and very kind of stale because it was something, the inauthenticity of it became very apparent.
1: There's something so in the moment about his shtick, we'll say. Obviously, it's improvisational, but even just watching it, that so much of the effect is just how fast everything is coming. You can tell me what sort of how you think the comedy albums stand up over time if so much of the appeal is being there with him really rapidly changing and sort of marveling at this wonder that's going on in front of you, then phrasing that and putting it up next to the classic comedy records of the early 80s and things like it doesn't
4: seem like it would stand up.
1: <laughs> what, I don't know. What do you think?
4: I think that that's a very valid observation. You're right that part of what was so impressive and entertaining about it was the just the sort of the experience of it and being in the proximity of it. And even you know even in a movie like Good Morning Vietnam, where, you know, all of those, the routines in the DJ booth where he's doing the kind of the radio announcing, they all appear to be improvisatory and made up in, on the spot. And in fact, he did a lot of work and a lot of preparation, just kind of drafting one liners and having all this material basically in his back pocket before he went in front of the camera so that he could make it look like he's making it up in real time. And to a certain extent, he is. But all the material is already there and at his fingertips. You know, in terms of the comedy routines, to go back to them now, it can be a little bit hit or miss. I think there are some earlier ones that do hold up very well, whether it's Live at the Roxy, which is a very early HBO special of his that's much more character pieces, playing individual characters for a few minutes at a time and not really a kind of straight-through comedy routine. Or even something like Live at the Met, where that starts to become more of a, a storytelling performance and it's him talking about being a new father and raising a young child, and that's really personal and very well observed. And yeah, then there are the other other routines that you can see the energy and the dynamism, but the sort of the actual content it doesn't really endure. I mean, a lot of the comic relief specials, <laughs> you know, like they're fun to watch just because you can see the the franticness of, you know, him and Billy and Whoopi playing around together. But it's not like there's that many jokes, specifically jokes from it that you say, oh, that's a good joke.
2: So I know that there are a number of reasons why it's important to tell Robin's story. And I was thinking about like, I guess this question is twofold. What lessons can we learn from Robin's story about ourselves? watching somebody going through this, maybe not knowing how to reach out for help or reaching out for help, but people not being there in the way that he needed, but also maybe what lessons do we have as the audience and how we treat celebrities and how we may have done him wrong and who knows who we're doing wrong right now. I mean, I, I think it's probably even worse now with Twitter. And <laughs> luckily some people turn that on its head, they're reading the mean tweets or whatever, but
4: It's a tough question because, you know, I can't say that I sort of went into it saying, you know, how can I write a book that's going to teach people any lessons other than here is as much of the truth of his life story that I can get. at You know, I certainly felt like even in the period immediately after his death, there was so much mythologizing and you you see all these kinds of a lot of stories about him that I, I know Kind of told in a spirit of goodwill and to, you know, meant to sort of appreciate him, but that on some level either I knew were not entirely true or just didn't seem to pass the smell test. And often they were about, you know, his generosity or, you know, his talent. And this happened all through his career. I mean, even again, going back to Mork and Mindy, he had this reputation of he's making up the entire episode. On the spot. And that was never true. You know, I mean, he was a great improviser and a great ad libber and had a lot of latitude to play with what was written for him on the page, but it was never true that he was like literally making up the episode as he went multiply that by just, you know, hundreds and hundreds of stories that were told about him after he died. And it was really more of an attempt to try to codify things and, and, you know, tell things in a kind of complete way so that, you know, certainly by the time you get to the end of his life, and there was a lot about the end of his life that we just didn't even know at the time that he died. I mean, his, his death itself was a mystery and kind of opaque in terms of what had happened in those last months, and, and that took some time for even that you know story to emerge. Sadly, it's not entirely a kind of story about somebody who needed you know mental help or personal connection. I mean, he was experiencing a degenerative brain disease, and that that there, it's sort of treatable, but certainly you know irreversible and incurable. And, and that, I mean, that's a really sad and hard thing I think to have to come to, to terms with there wasn't a a way to really, you know, he could have had a better end of his life, but it's not something that he could have been completely spared. And his death, you know, brought forward all this other kind of communication about mental health and a cultural discussion. But in some ways, it wasn't entirely applicable to what he had actually experienced. That was difficult, you know, I think, you know, especially for his family and friends who knew what was really happening to him. I think it was hard for them to kind of you know, pierce that or step in the middle of that and say, what you're talking about doesn't really describe what he was going. Through.
3: Erica, this'll be a little tangential to your question, but I want to talk about it anyway because at the time of Robin's suicide, in my own life, there had been a suicide in my family, in my close family, like a couple of weeks before. And I was left really cold by this outpouring of sympathy for Robin Williams, in part because like I had this really personal thing happening to me, and I was kind of irritated that people were mourning over someone they didn't know. I get it. He's a celebrity, and they loved his work, whatever. But like, I really didn't get it. And a lot of that was personal for me. But what I ended up doing, not in the moment, but afterward, was really starting to dig into what is the authenticity of our relationship to celebrities. And I became a bit more forgiving of this whole thing as I came to realize that people I think their relationships, I've come to realize, really are authentic. Even, I've never met Robin Williams or, or the people who I revere you know, most dearly as celebrities or whatever. But our connections are real. Then thinking about this podcast, I, I have to feel like at some level that's got to work in both directions. Robin Williams didn't know his audience members on any deep level, but he still had this connection to them. Otherwise he couldn't have done his craft with, either as a actor or as a stand-up comedian or a USO performer or or whatever. So, it took me a while to come around on this.
2: I have a hard time with that too when any when anyone passes, especially when a celebrity passes, but even when somebody there was somebody recently in the Broadway community who passed and a bunch of people just started posting stuff and people like the person's best friend who I knew, you know, it was very hard for her because she's like we spent all of our time together and yet there are all these people who are coming around and saying In one sense, it's nice, right? It's nice because you know that your friend was loved or your loved one was loved. But on the other hand, it can feel like they're trying to make everything about them.
3: I totally get that part of it. If you watch a movie and the actor makes you laugh or makes you cry, whatever it is, that's a real thing. You can't shed tears over something that isn't actually connecting with you. And you may not know that person. You certainly don't know a character. That character is not a real thing, but it's still, it's become part of you, I guess, in some way. I think there is still a lot of of tension in all that, and what you're talking about, I think, is different from what I am. And I could see like a different level of irritation is the right word, but this feeling like there's like a different kind of ownership. You know, you have this relationship with this person, and others. Yeah, I, I totally see where you're coming from, and this is still a process that I'm working through in, in my end of just in terms of how we deal with celebrities. And to this day, when celebrities die, I, I tend to shrug more than than mourn only because. Just, I didn't know these people. All right, there will be no laughter
4: during this yeah. podcast.
3: Gonna, don't talk about the
4: Hantavirus. I think what you're talking about is very true. I think it's kind of a twofold, at least, you know, experience in the sense that, you know, I, I mean, certainly what I saw Robin deal with, you know, firsthand, I mean, I, you know, I was at a show with him in Atlanta and there was like a little meet and greet afterwards for fans who had paid for like premium tickets and you know, he just says hi to people, but this woman, you know, slipped him a note and the note was all about, it was a very thankful, sweet note uh, talking about how much Robin had meant to her. And I mean, she used the phrase, uh, you know, she said something to the effect of, you know, I would walk through hell for you. And that's how much his work had meant to her. And she was really trying to convey to him, like, you know, you are an important person to me. You're somebody that I truly care about. And I feel like you've done a lot for me. And now, you know, multiply that for him by... Probably, you know, thousands, if not millions of people who had tried to communicate that in some way to him and that it can make you feel special and it can, you can take that to heart, but it can also feel, I think, very burdensome that you then feel. And he certainly did the, some obligation that every time you have a kind of personal or one-on-one interaction with a fan or with an observer, he certainly felt like he had to give them some kind of Robin Williams experience. He didn't want that person to go away. Disappointed or thinking, ah, you know, that guy's an asshole, or he's not as funny in person as he is, you know, in movies or in his stand up. And that's, he made that decision for himself, but that's a huge kind of obligation to put on your own shoulders. As you were saying, that's, that's all still separate from how people processed his death. And there was so much conversation and sadly so much misunderstanding that I think then kind of crowded out. The reality of what had happened to him, so that by the time that information came out, I don't know that people were fully receptive of it or aware of it. You know, I still talk to people who think that, you know, he committed suicide because he was experiencing depression or because people think he had money problems and he took his own life because he couldn't pay his bills anymore. It's just because people, you know, they came to a conclusion early on and then the reality of the story kind of never reached that.
1: Let's stop for a minute and talk about our sponsor, Feels, F-E-A-L-S. Feels is premium CBD delivered directly to your doorstep. If you've got anxiety or chronic pain or have trouble sleeping, Feels is a natural way to help you feel better without any high, any hangover, any addiction. I know multiple people for whom CBD has been a lifesaver. My old drummer Dave, for instance, he's been on the Pretty Much Pop podcast as a guest. He had had this chronic face pain following an illness. And they had him on Vicodin, which is really not going to be a long-term solution. So he absolutely swears by CBD. I'm guessing if you ask around, you're going to find somebody in your circle that has a similar story. So use this as an opportunity to get educated. Fields really emphasizes education. They have a hotline and text message support for customers or even people just looking into the product to answer any of your questions and help guide your personal experience. Okay, so if CBD is interesting to you, why Fields in particular? Because the product and the experience are very well designed First, it's third-party tested. In fact, it's tested six times from seed to oil. And there's a QR code on every package that lets you see your batch's specific test results. Now, what they sent me was called The Flight, which is a very fancily packaged sample pack. It's got three vials of feels at different strengths. So it's just one dose each, and it has a little guidebook that tells you, okay, take this one for bed, take this one in the morning. This one will help you concentrate better. This one will help you sleep. It's a tincture, which has much higher absorption level than a capsule. So you just place a few drops of feels under your tongue you feel the difference within minutes. I tend to have a very overactive mind. Feels help me buckle down and study and stop distracting myself. So check out their website. That's feals.com slash pretty. And you should look at becoming a member, which will get you 50% automatically taken off your first order with free shipping. You can feel better. Become a member today. Visit feels.com slash pretty for 50% off your first order and free shipping. I think you're, we would be in a good position, Dave, to write a self-help book, you know, how to be a celebrity in a healthy way that you've dealt with enough of these, you know, it seems like the default, the only way that a moral sensitive person could accept this is just gratitude, which seemed to be Robin's attitude of wanting to, you know, I'm just so overwhelmed by the fact that my work is appreciated that I want to give as much of myself as is possible. But it seems like that might not be the, the actually the healthiest way for most people to handle that situation. And I think about I saw an interview with Jerry Seinfeld where he would say, Yeah, people come up to me and they'll and they'll say, Oh yeah, you should, you know, come over to the club. And he's like, No, no, TV is a one-way medium. I don't actually know you. You might know me, but I don't know you. Like, just acknowledging that fact of the situation. Or Erica turned me onto some of these uh, Joaquin Phoenix articles that it seems like he has this even with journalists, like Just a really keen sense of how weird this all is, like, and not feeling like I deserve it or, you know, like you just gave me a nice pie and I should be gracious for it. Like, no, because it's not like you just gave me a nice pie. It's like the whole world is throwing
4: pies at you. There almost is no way. You know, you can't really write a roadmap to tell somebody you know, how to experience celebrity. And I think it, it sort of happens, so, you know, almost like every, you know, every generation, there are people who they think, okay, I, you know, I'm going to be the one who can, you know, sidestep all the pitfalls of it, or I'm going to do it differently than, than other people. And and nobody really ever is able to. I think the only thing that maybe is different now, I think in some ways, it's almost impossible for people to become as famous as people once were. There was sort of a kind of a peak of the monoculture where for the most part, you know, obviously this isn't entirely true, but like people who were famous to everybody, people were all kind of had their attention focused in the same direction. Now it's much more divided and niche and people become famous in, you know, to certain pockets of an audience, but very few people become famous to everybody. But there are also different kinds of of fame now. People become famous for very kind of strange and, and reasons that seem to have no merit uh, attached to them at all. And, and, but I'm sure those, even those people experience the same kind of, you know, anxiety.
2: I was enjoying reading your piece on, on Joaquin Phoenix and just how completely different it feels to the situations that you experienced with Robin.
4: You know, as an interviewer, sometimes you go into a conversation and if you ask a question, and you get an answer. And then that leads to another question, and you get another answer. And that's all fine. But that this was definitely not that kind of a conversation. And this this required a slightly higher level of uh, engagement and a level of preparation that maybe I thought I had put in, but discovered I still was not sufficiently prepared. And I mean, that became the experience. And that's what you end up writing about. Could I have done a better job? Could I have asked different questions? Could I have asked you know, the right questions, I'll never, I'll never know, you know, unless, unless I get another chance to sit down with him someday. It's, it's hard to know, you know, how much of that is a person sort of reacting in the moment. And what, what is it that he's even reacting uh, to? And am I being put on? I don't, I seriously don't know.
2: He certainly had a very different childhood than Robin. And he certainly had to be a survivor in so many ways throughout his life. And I'm sure that that obviously that changes a person doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to play with you like a cat. <laughs> what did she say?
4: Like- yeah, no, like the way that a cat is kind of like taunting its prey before it, you know, counts is on them. He comes from a family that I mean, you know, they all had very good reasons for I think being suspicious of the press, and you know, the way that he and all his siblings were written about at different times, the way certainly, you know, his brother's to death. Was written about. I mean, you, you know, they perfectly justified for I think being very cautious of journalists and keeping them at arm's length. And I think, you know, I, I don't know this for sure, but I, I can imagine why the interview process might feel kind of transactional in a way. And this is true of all actors. I mean, they don't do interviews for a living. They're artists and they're performers, and that's what they do. That. The interview is something that you do, you know, at the end to promote the work that you're doing. And that, but that is not the work itself. And, and, you know, some people can still enjoy that or be good at it. But I don't know that he necessarily sees that as his maybe an obligation, but it's not, certainly not something that he sees as sort of part of the job description. And he definitely lets you know that.
2: I was reading some other things about Joaquin and how. You know, he's like, no, I don't really. What? How many followers do I have? Like five? Like fifty? Like he's not a person who seems at all concerned with keeping an audience wrapped with him as Joaquin. He wants people to pay attention to the work. Whereas Robin seems much more of a, my work is who I am too, and I'm picking these parts based on, as you said, like somebody I connect with and somebody whose story is worth telling. And yeah,
1: also. With Robin, just this concern that you pointed out in your book, Dave, of him looking at the rise of Jim Carrey and seeing this as a threat to his position in the culture, that sort of undermines this. Oh, I just I'm um, feel so humble. I'm so I have so much gratitude. As weird and unjust as income inequality is, and wealth inequality more generally, and how strange and icky I've, I would think that the one percent of the one percent should feel about that in the world of fame even more so, right? Everybody wants respect. Everybody wants to be remembered. Everybody wants people that they don't even know to be sending messages to each other, praising your life after you die. But only a few people are going to get that. And so I feel like Joaquin has a very keen sense of just kind of how messed up that is. And I think that in part actually explains, it's a little indivisible from jealousy, but the hot and cold reaction that even fans have toward someone like on the one hand, I like your work. On the other hand, by definition, you are overrated, right? Because you are rated so much higher than every single other, you know, person that I deal with in my daily life. There's just kind of a shocking on the ground inequality and, in, and, in, and what is the authentic way to react to that when you're in this situation, this entertainment interview situation, you know, you could either sit quietly and like, yes, I'll do my best to help you out journalist, to do your job and answer your questions helpfully. Or I will try to engage you, you know, as equals. Like there's no reason that you should just be asking me questions. I'll ask you questions or like what seems like Joaquin's thing is, you know, see the whole situation as absurd and kind of treat it as his whim. I don't know. Tell us about your kind of the range of experiences you've had in how people deal with their interviews.
4: What you're describing right there, I think is, is kind of the, definitely, you know, they are two poles on a spectrum of experience and there can be, you know, other extremes as well. I mean, there, there are certainly people that I don't think I've ever had anybody who was like openly hostile to me or, or, you know what I mean? Like rejected my questions or, or, you know, nobody ever like that. I mean, unless it's really like, kind of like, an ambush situation. I mean, these are always, you know, they're always done by kind of, you know, mutual agreement. It's not, I certainly am never just like showing up on somebody's doorstep and, you know, surprising them with the 60 Minutes camera crew or something. On some level, they know what they're getting into. And and certainly, you know, in Robin's case, you know, I mean, I found him to be almost kind of relentlessly candid and really wanting to talk about himself. I mean, that was in a period when he'd just come out of, he'd gone to rehab, he'd had, open heart surgery. So I mean, I think he had these experiences that really were kind of life altering and made him want to be more confessional with people and and wanting to be more, I think, kind of open and and truthful. And as you said, I mean, Joaquin is, is certainly somebody who is on the other end of that. And I understand why, you know, people in general, not just just celebrities, I think people are much more sort of questioning about print journalism, especially, that, that people understand that that's something, it's not even like doing a TV interview where on some level they have to broadcast, you know, what the camera captures. Print journalism, written journalism is much, is, there's more of a subjectivity involved in that. And it's about the person conducting the interview is writing it up and then communicating back oh, on some level what they experienced and the subject of that story has no control over that. And I I certainly can understand why that can be very disorienting to be the person written about, and then to maybe see something that you feel like doesn't represent you at all, or that doesn't, it just doesn't. It's the experience of when recording your voice and then playing it back and you don't hear the sound that you're used to hearing in your own head. And that's so strange. So I, I can understand why Somebody of of any kind of uh, walk of life might approach that with some wariness.
2: David, one thing I want to commend you on is listening to interviews, watching interviews with you. You do a really great job with that. And I was talking to my husband's a big follower of yours. I was like, he's really well spoken. He he sounds really great, which is not always something that happens with people. Just because you can write well doesn't mean that you're going to be at being the person who is interviewed.
4: It's something I've definitely thought about too. I mean, I, pre- I appreciate all the nice things that you're saying, and I've, I've definitely done bad interviews too. There's no question. You're, see, you know, we're, I'm glad we're focusing on the good ones, uh, and, but they are very different. You know, I mean, it, to do this kind of journalism, other kinds of journalism, they're, they're different skill sets that it encompasses. That you're right, it is part of it is about, particularly if it's a profile, having that conversation with your subject and how you guide that. And that person, weirdly enough, I mean, whoever it is, I mean, some people can definitely steamroll you or they just kind of stick to their talking points or whatever agenda it is that they have for that conversation. But I still find that, that they're still at your mercy in some way. They are still trying to respond to your questions. They don't always know. They don't know what you're going to ask next. And that is a kind of power. I feel like if you can go into a conversation like that with some organization and know which way you want to lead the conversation, you can ease them or guide them to subjects that maybe they would be more reluctant to talk about if you just came right at them and asked them in a very blunt way. And not not everything is always about trying to elicit, you know, information they don't want to share, but it can be about Making them more comfortable, and just by the time you get to the more sort of sensitive matters, they already feel like you are, you know, doing it in an appreciative way and not an exploitative way. But then there's the whole other part of the experience or the of the task of journalism, which is then right writing the story. And that's a combination of what actually came out of the interview, the actual words that person said. And then, you know, you as the author, you know, how you process that, how you experience that, giving a sense of it, conveying that, I think, without making the story about you or letting your particular perspective overwhelm whatever it is that the subject is conveying to you, because the subject is the story. Joaquin interview is kind of an outlier. Not every endeavor is like that. And that was a specific case where I felt it was appropriate to maybe let my own sort of subjective experience become more of the story because it was so wild and and unique. But sometimes it's more important to really let the subject speak for themselves, of course, and and let whatever their energy is, uh, let that dictate the story.
3: Dave, are you at a point in your career where you can pick and choose who you're going to interview in profile or is there a mix of assignments and who you can kind of go after
4: it's really an ongoing conversation with my editors and and certainly whatever is happening in the culture which obviously we we, you know we don't dictate at all i mean we don't know you know obviously in a given year or in a given season you know what's going to become popular what movies or tv shows or Stage plays, or musicals, or albums are going to be out there. So that, you know, and who people are responding to or curious about—that's dictating a lot of it. But you know, certainly my colleagues here, I think they know some degree my tastes, my interests, my curiosities. So that. I don't really find myself, let's say, in a situation where it's like, this story has to be done and you're the guy that's going to do it because we just need to get it done. And I don't think that that happens. But, you know, some of it comes from, here's a project that I know is coming up and I find this person interesting. Or, you know, my editors are aware of something and they say, hey, you know, would you want to do this? And I say, yes, I would. Or let me think about it. Or You know, sometimes I go into something with not really even knowing that much of, and I don't want to say not knowing much about the person, but you know, maybe it's not somebody that I have a personal affinity for, or I've spent a lot of time thinking about their work, but I'm curious about, I've gotten a sense of them only through their work. And I wonder who is, who is the person behind that? Who who are they when they're not doing the thing we know them for? And sometimes it just comes from somebody who represents one of these people who say, Hey, this person is, has a new thing. Do you want to talk to them? So sometimes You know, I know publicists get a bad rap in this industry, but the good ones, you know, are people that I've had conversations with and relationships for a long time. And so, you know, they also know to some degree what turns me on or where my antenna are pointed.
3: So you have that conversation and it's whether it's someone you were interested in or maybe you weren't, or to a degree or wanted to know that thing about. So you've had the talk and X hundred or X thousand words later, do you feel like you know that person really anymore? I'm, I'm just... As a reader, I only see the words I see, but I'm just curious if, if you feel like you have that beyond, you, you've sat down with them and you've spoken to them, but do you feel like you have any real new understanding?
4: You know, I think about that myself. I mean, I have the knowledge of, of the experience, the specific experience that I had, you know, with that subject in, in that period of time. And I, you know, I spent time talking to them and I got some sense From that interaction and often from talking to other people that they know or worked with of, you know, a snapshot of them. But that doesn't mean that, you know, I saw the exact person. I mean, to go back to the example of the Joaquin Phoenix interview, I I don't know if I saw the real person or a version of himself that he was putting on for me because, you know, it was funny to him. You know, obviously, not every interview is, is like that, but again, you're only seeing the version of that person that they are presenting to you at that time. And that, I mean, that's in some way why, you know, writing a book about a person's life, there's a satisfaction to that because you're seeing the breadth of them and that person can change and evolve. And they're different people at different times, they're different people two different people, you know, and and who they're in the presence of. And you can see, obviously, they're not always the same. And and oftentimes the interviews that they gave really only represent a fraction of of who they were. And you can also see the times when they were not lying, but they were misrepresenting themselves sometimes in interviews. They were shying away from certain subjects that you knew they were sensitive about. Or, again, just to give an example with Robin Williams, I mean, sometimes he would tell people, he was an only child when, in fact, you know, he had these two half brothers that sometimes he acknowledged and sometimes didn't, but loved very much and had great relationships with. Even in a simple example like that, I mean, you see the way that journalism about people, even when I think it's done in you know, entirely good faith, it doesn't always represent the entirety of, of a particular person.
1: Which, of course, that example, it's because the situation was complicated, that he actually was essentially living by himself with his parents for a lot of his childhood, in your book, and or if somebody's seen the recent documentary that came out about him, I thought was pretty good also for giving a, a great rundown of his sort of life setup. If you're right in the entertainment field, do you get the feeling with a lot of celebrity interviews that you see that they're transactional with the person that they're really purely parasitic on the entertainment itself. Like the movies themselves will last forever. This particular interview will be thrown, you know, if it's not done particularly well, or if it's very typical, will be thrown in the bin. But if you can tell a thorough enough story, then you've created a story or documented slash created a story that's compelling in itself, that can earn its place in the culture alongside of the works of the person, as opposed to the hundreds of interviews that somebody does running, you know, upon release of a film.
4: That's something that's always been sort of true of entertainment journalism, you know, going back decades. In some ways, the, the form has not really you know, changed or been reinvented all that much. You can look to magazines from the 1950s and and some publications, you know, took it as seriously as they could and tried to produce, you know, long pieces that they thought would be enduring. And and obviously some were very frivolous and, and, you know, and some that we can see right now, you know, some that we can look back on now that you can see were completely made up or completely controlled by the studio or obviously putting forth a version of a person's life that was, you know, completely false or putting, you know, trying to put a kind of a very rosy picture on somebody whose life was was much more complicated. And I think those kinds of tensions and those kinds of questions are just kind of persistent within the business, even as, you know, obviously, we're, we're moving further and further away, of course, from like a print, tangible print model of journalism. And there's all kinds of forms now, not just like written stories, but video pieces and people who just like to do memes and and celebrities who are perfectly happy just being in, you know, a kind of a late night TV comedy sketch as opposed to an interview. And they can promote their product or their new movie or TV show or whatever it is just as easily. And that's also a way of giving people a taste of who they are, or at least a perception of access or availability. That's obviously a very new thing, but it's not, you know, it's just a kind of different form of You know, I think what, you know, this kind of journalism has always offered in some way or another.
1: It's just what was different because technology has made communications more centralized, right? That I read the New York Times online. I don't live in New York. (laughs) And that's sort of just increasing that we have a couple papers that are getting everywhere. And likewise with, you know, you could do radio interviews. You know, you can still do a radio interview tour, but it's sort of less and less necessary, right? You can hear if somebody just posted on YouTube or whatever. It seems less of a purpose for a celebrity to give the same pat answers to interview after interview after interview because – just do one interview, you know, which I guess there were parallels of that before of like, you know, you go on the Tonight Show, everybody see the Tonight Show. So while everything is more accessible, of course, everything is still more spread out. So you're probably still doing lots of those because you're going to hit different demographics or somebody will stumble across one of them. Yeah.
4: You know, in any era and even now, it's always about, you know, multiple impressions that somebody still has to see something, you know, several times or or, you know, read about that thing in multiple places before they you know make the connection or or have the curiosity it's exactly as you say i mean in some way like the institutions uh, you know like god bless the times that it's it's still you know standing and it obviously has that reach but there's fewer and fewer like it and at the same time we've lost you know so many regional and local you know news organizations and obviously not just covering entertainment and culture but covering their particular backyards and so it's that trade of the institutions that are available and our around, obviously, you know, have maybe as much reach as they've ever had, but then there's fewer and fewer of them.
2: That's interesting. You do miss some local flavor, right? You miss local stories. You miss that connection. I don't know. I'm trying to make a connection here with what Robin did because it seemed like what he wanted to do is connect individually to people. So to get at that giant scale like the New York Times is or to get at the giant scale like Robin Williams was, it's not that it can't have that local flavor, but it's never going to be exactly the same as the true human connection, which he was trying to get, but how can you do it at such a global level?
4: Not everybody comes at the sort of the enterprise of art or entertainment in that same way. Not everybody sees it as being about connection. Some people, I think, just want to do what they do and then go back to whatever kind of, you know, hermetic life they lead or they are sharing themselves in their work. And that is the extent to which they want to share themselves. And in some ways, like our desire to go beyond that to know more about them as people that's like that's the dynamic that's what we do as people but it does feel kind of weird and artificial and unnatural like what do we care what like we saw the thing we saw your painting we saw your performance that's what you did that's what you gave us already why do we then want to like know what it's like to eat breakfast with you the next day
1: but we do Often because I'm doing interviews with people, I, I run a music podcast and because the culture is so spread out, you can't assume that your audience in advance is interested in this person. Writing a Robin Williams biography, nobody's going to buy that, that does not already know and enjoy his work. So you don't have to worry about that. But I, I would think increasingly, even if somebody has, you know, a film that's coming out, like, of course, it is to promote the film. That's their side of the transaction that they're not assuming that. The world already is hanging on their every word and they're just granting you this boon by telling you what it's like to eat breakfast with them. No, they're, they're actually trying to make something, show something of themselves or talk up their project, especially if you're talking to authors. Nobody will have read the book in advance and then want to look at the interviews. Like it's, that's backward. I don't know. I would think there would be room for the who you're interviewing to have the wrong expectation about (laughs) how much people already care in advance about who they are and to try to impress upon them like, don't just tell me what it's like to eat breakfast because no one cares. <laughs> Justify the fact that we're having this conversation by making it independently interesting to someone who
4: has never already heard your work. That can be the pleasure of it, uh, you know, and certainly in my in my line of work and it, reading other people's pieces or, you know, listening to another podcast. And, you know, I, I think it's part of why podcasting has become one of the great innovations of this era is a way of engaging with a person and really discovering them in a way that you maybe couldn't before, you know, or haven't been able to in quite a while that, you know, that you're really getting not just a sense of them, but the ability to let them explore what's interesting to them, I think, in a a kind of a, a, a deeper way. I I, I mean, it's, you know, it's like the way people like root for sports teams or the way I imagine they do, because I have never really been a sports fan (laughs) in my life. But it's not just about watching this person play the game that they play, but you want, you want to feel that affinity for them. You know, if you like their work, you want to feel like you share their values in some way, or their interests and their curiosities. You want to hear them explain the thought process that they may have had behind the thing that they did or answer some specific questions about it and know that they like some of the thing, same things you like or they like things you've never heard of and they can turn you on to things that you didn't know before. And so you feel that much more connected to them and you feel validated in yourself. Like, I, I was right to like this thing that this person did because I like the person behind
3: it. Dave just unwittingly plugged our Sports as Pop podcast. Go ahead and tell people a little bit about your podcast about Revan Williams. I know we're getting close to wrapping up, but I think that'd be interesting
4: for people to sure. know. Sure. It's called Knowing Colin Robin Williams and it is something you know fairly new that, that uh, my publisher uh, McMillan is you know doing more of now which are you know podcasts that are based on or adapted from the books that they publish and I was very fortunate to work uh, there with a, a producer named Christine Westgard so I am a kind of a a voice and a in a sense a co-host of the of the podcast but I am just one of many people telling Robin's story and also talking about you know the different themes in his life and career you know, at different stages of his life. And so some of the episodes are very much delving into his life story and telling you more of the fact, the details, hearing from people who were sources from, for the book. But then there are other episodes like there's one that we did that's just a whole conversation with the comedian Chris Gethard, who knew Robin a little bit and had a chance to perform with him at the Upright Citizens Brigade in an improv setting. But Chris's own comedy is also very personal and about him. And, you know, he's, you know, done routines and written about mental health and suicide and so some of the ideas and themes just in uh, robin's life story are you know personal to him and connect with him and we talk about you know what can comedy do to help with mental health and so you know it's using again robin's life story as a way to get into other ideas as well well
1: thank you so much for joining us dave this was very enlightening
4: Oh, thank you. It was really my pleasure, and uh, I hope we didn't. I hope we didn't deconstruct journalism to the point that it becomes incomprehensible. <laughs> I hope we didn't dismantle it today. <laughs> I think
1: there will be a before this interview and an after this interview as yeah. to the future of journalism. <laughs> yes, chronologically, that is definitely true. Thank you, Dave.
4: <laughs> yeah, it was a pleasure. You, thank you. Thank you so much.
2: Where can people uh, find more of your
4: work? NYtimes.com slash buy slash Dave hyphen Itzkoff. You can find all my uh, times reporting there. And then uh, on Twitter, I'm just at D Itzkoff.
2: Great. Thank you so much.
4: Goodbye,
1: listeners. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode, and you get to hear the episodes in advance of everyone else at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network, and it's also presented by OpenCulture.com.